Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1? Many consider this to be the greatest book in the Bible. If I had my pick of one uh, out of the 66, I would take Romans. That's me. But Paul gives us the theme of this book in the very first sentence, the gospel of God. Or in other words, to make it very simple, what is the good news of God that allows a person to be made right with him so that they can go to heaven? How does a, a person, he or she, how can they be made right with God and go to heaven? That's what the book of Romans answers. Now, Paul's introduction to Romans is the longest by far of any of his other epistles. In introduction, he packs a lot of theology into That's why we've been taking our time trying to dig it out, not just gloss over it. I mean, we want to look at this. This introduction sets the tone for the entire book. And we want to make sure that we um, don't rush through it. But let's just... Back up to verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, last week we got down to verse 5 where Paul tells us that through our relationship with Jesus Christ, we have received grace. Grace means God uh, gives us a gift. It's unmerited favor, undeserved blessing. Okay, Everything that comes from God is by grace. We deserve nothing. We earn nothing. It's all a gift that he gives to us out of his great love. And then he says we've received grace and apostleship. The Greek word for apostle is apostolos, which literally means one who has been sent out with a commission. But the word also carries with it the idea of being authorized to act on behalf of another, often a dignitary, uh, especially a, a king or governor, that kind of thing. And of course, when the New Testament writers use that kind of language, they're talking about us fulfilling the Great Commission. Now, that's, the, that's the, the key to the introduction. He tells us it's all about the gospel of God. But the gospel of God and how it works its way out in our lives is we go into the, all the world and share the good news. So, um, you know, as Jesus ended uh, Mark's gospel, as Mark records, Jesus said to his church, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person. He who believes is uh, and is baptized will be saved, and he who does not believe will be condemned. And so, guys, very simply, and you know this, the Great Commission is all about Jesus, our King. We represent him as ambassadors on foreign soil. He's in heaven. We represent him here on the earth. But he is sending us into the world with the good news of God's pardon. We're sinners, condemned sinners, who will need to spend eternity paying for our crimes. But the good news is God has pardoned us. Somebody else took our punishment. Um, you know, 
substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ died in our place. He died for our sins. And um, that allowed God to offer us a pardon. Somebody else paid the price. And uh, along with that pardon, God's inviting us then to become uh, children in his family, the family of God, and members of his kingdom someday, which will be forever as Jesus rules uh, over the entire earth and then on into eternity. But since all believers in Jesus have been commissioned by the Lord, well, technically all believers are apostles in the sense that all believers in Christ have been sent into the world to proclaim the good news of God's salvation. We're not apostles like the twelve. We don't get revelation from God that is, is infallible truth like they did, but we are apostles in the very broadest sense of the term. We are sent out uh, with a commission to tell everybody about God's love and what Jesus has done to uh, offer them a pardon where they can become members of God's kingdom. Now, I, I know at this point, you know, we're talking about being sent out and serving God. I know at this point there are those who would say, but, but who am I? I'm nobody. I'm not special. How could God use me? Well, you know, Moses felt exactly the same way. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, God had, in chapter 3, God had said, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh. Tell him to let my people go. I want to use you as an instrument. And Moses said to God, but who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So Moses had uh, a, a self-esteem issue. Good. Because you don't want to have self-esteem, you want to have God-esteem, okay? But anyways, uh, later on in chapter 4 of Exodus, uh, verse 2, the Lord said to Moses, because he's, he's, you know, Lord, I can't do it, I, I'm, not, I'm not qualified, and so on. And the Lord said to Moses, what is in your hand? He said, a rod. Well, in Moses' hand was the rod of a shepherd. He'd been shepherding sheep for 40 years by this point, right? Which God used, God used the rod of a shepherd to deliver the children of Israel through the Red Sea and then to shepherd them in the wilderness for 40 years. Let me ask you, because it begs the question, what is in your hand? You know, in David's hand, there was, this, there was a sling that God used to bring down a giant. In Samson's hand, hand, there was a, a jawbone of a donkey that God used to destroy the Philistine army. And in the little boy's hand in the Gospels, there were five loaves and two fish, which Jesus used to multiply uh, and feed thousands. So again, let me ask you, what is in your hand? Now, you know, God can use anybody in anything, okay? I mean, is there a brush of an artist in your hand, the pen of a writer, the hammer of a carpenter, the guitar of a musician? I know some of the young girls might be saying, you know, lately... Uh, I'm a young mom. It seems like there's nothing but a diaper in my hand all the time. How's God going to use that? Well, how about in the church nursery, looking after some of the kids that, of people who are serving in the worship team or uh, some other place? And I know that doesn't sound very exciting. You know, I, I can just hear young mom say, well, I was hoping to do a little more for God than that. But the Bible says, do not despise the days of small things. If you are faithful in the little things, God will give you greater things to do. If Jesus could wash dirty feet, uh, why can't we clean a toilet or change a diaper or something like that, right? He gave us the example to follow. 
But again, I know people want to look at these biblical characters and elevate them to a level where, you know, they're just so special. You know, Moses, boy, he was Moses. He was gifted. He was special. Okay. I can see why God used him. Well, let's, here's how Moses felt about his abilities for serving God. Why don't you turn to it, Exodus 4. We think these people were super saints. Guys like Moses and David and Daniel and so on. But they were just ordinary people that God used, just like us. Sure, God used them in extraordinary ways. But they were just ordinary people that were used by an extraordinary God to do his work. But here's how Moses felt about his abilities for serving God. Exodus 4, verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent. Neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. He stuttered. Okay. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who, or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. God used him. In spite of himself, God used him. And when it comes to our abilities, or the lack thereof for serving the Lord, uh, let me just read you two passages. You don't have to turn to these. I want to read the first one uh, out of the uh, New Living Translation, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 29, where Paul said, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world. Here we are. Things counted as nothing at all and used them to bring to nothing that uh, what the world considered important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God uses the weak the foolish, the base, the nobodies. Now, Paul said, look, God, he, he doesn't use many, wise, noble, and so on. He didn't say he doesn't use any. There are some very intelligent people in the body of Christ, very gifted that God has used. But for the most part, God uses average people, again, the weak, the foolish, the base, the nobodies, that when God does work, he gets all the glory. And that's what we want. We want God. We want to be used by God, but we don't want to be uh, in the spotlight. We don't want to be praised. We don't want to be lifted up on a pedestal. No, that's the wrong thing to want, because it's a it's a it's a long fall from that pedestal. And many a man and woman of God who were once used mightily by God got full of pride and began to think they were something when they were nothing, and they fell. And uh, it makes a pretty loud thud. But you all know Second Chronicles 16, verse 9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro about the face of the whole earth, looking for someone who's what, talented? Whose heart is loyal, that he might show himself strong through. It, look, it's not ability that God is looking for. It's availability. Availability. Any Christian who reports for duty by saying to the Lord what Isaiah said, Who can we send? 
for this mission. And Isaiah said, here am I, Lord, send me. Here am I, Lord, use me. And if that's your heart, know this, according to what God said in Second Chronicles 16, 9 and many other places, God wants to use you more than you want to be used. Oh, why would God use me? How can God use me? He's God. Why would he use you? Because he's God and chooses to use you. He's sovereign. How could he use me? Because he gives you the power to be what he's called you to be, to do. If you want to be used, God says, I want to use you. And I'll give you the grace, the power, the ability. I just want the availability. I want you to report for duty. And I will use you. Now, Last week, we ran out of time before we could focus on something that I would really want to spend the rest of our time this evening focusing on. And, and I realized that, you know, I, I, I said to somebody before we started the study in Romans, I don't want to make it so in-depth we take forever to go through it, but I want to strike a balance between being too, um, too much of an overview study and then so deep, people get lost in where are we, all right? But on this introduction, there are some things that I felt we needed to spend a little extra time on. And what Paul said in verse 5 is one of those times, okay? For some of you who have been coming to Calvary for a while, this is familiar territory. But Paul brings it up, and we need to focus. We, I don't want to rush past it, is the idea. And um, so he, he mentions this almost in passing. But it really is, I think, so important that we understand it, right? So Romans 5, um, that through him, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship. Listen, for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. When Paul talks about obedience to the faith, he has in mind the same thing Jude did when Jude admonished believers to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once uh, for all delivered to the saints. Guys, the faith, definite article, the faith, is a truth that is the truth that was revealed by God for the New Testament period, in which the church is built upon and of which the gospel is primary. When you're talking about the truth of God, there's nothing more primary than that which the truth that God has uh, revealed to us that saves men and women, fallen men and women. Okay, now once you're saved, yes, there's a lot of other New Testament truth that will help you to walk with God, bear fruit of the Spirit, and so on. But the whole context that we're looking at is the gospel of God in this introduction. Well, the whole book, really. Uh, but the gospel of God, which, which means for us going into all the world and sharing God's truth, right? And um, remember, again, that as we're going into the world preaching the gospel or the good news of God, um, we have to understand something. Now, hear me out, because some of you that really don't know me that well might be prone to think as I progress in this teaching tonight, oh, He's teaching salvation by works. Where's the door? I'm out of here. I am not teaching salvation by works. I'm teaching a salvation that what? Works. We'll touch on that if we have time um, as we progress. But 
the Bible is clear. We want to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We, that's our commission. That's what we've been empowered to do. And, and that's our joy. Think about it. Do you, as a Christian, do you ever have greater joy than when you lead someone to Christ? I mean, that's just, you know, talk about making your day, okay? That's just, it's just who we are. That's the heart God's given us, okay? But the Bible is clear that receiving the good news involves turning from the old life. The life of sin and self, embracing a whole new life, uh, a life as a new creation for God, where old things have passed away, all things have become new. It's, a, it's embracing and living a, a, a new life in and for Christ. It's called repentance. Repentance. Paul wrote to the, uh, to the Christians in Thessalonica, co commending them as to how their faith, in other words, their how. Their witness was because they were saved and uh, were, 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 were living such an incredible life for, for Jesus um, that word of their faith spread throughout the whole region, okay, and uh, which their region was modern, our modern Greece, okay. But um, how they had become a testimony, Paul is telling them, a witness to all people in their area. He, I'll quote 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul said, your faith toward God has... And I want you to, to, to... There's a reason I'm quoting these two. I want you to see that uh, embracing the new life in Christ involves turning away from the old life. No, that's salvation by works. No, it is not. No, it is not. But Paul says, your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. <laughs> your lives speak for themselves. Your living epistles. I don't have to say anything. People study your life, and they see what Jesus is all about. That's how dynamic they were in their walk. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves, your works, declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. Uh, we had to you. In other words, our ministry was successful among your you people. It's obvious because your lives are completely changed. And how, listen, you turned to God from idols. That's repentance. It's the turning away from sin, whatever form it takes, to God. That's repentance, okay? You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Uh, turn over to Acts 26. Because in Acts 26, Paul was sharing his testimony with King Agrippa and how the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Paul and commissioned him as an apostle, pressed him into service, called him into the ministry. And uh, I'm just going to read verses 16 to 20, where Paul said that the Lord Jesus Christ said to him, I'm quoting the Lord Jesus, I have appeared to you, Paul, for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will reveal to you. Paul wrote most of the New Testament because God revealed to Paul New Testament doctrine that he wrote down and became a big chunk of our New Testament. All right. But Jesus said, I'm, I, you know, I, I want you to be a witness for me uh, of both the things you have seen, the things I'm going to reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to. Now, here was the here was the um, Mark, Paul's marching orders. Okay. 
This is what Jesus wanted him to go out into all the world, especially among the Gentiles, and preach, right? Here's what I want you to here's what I'm sending you to do, Paul, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now Paul says, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Do you see it there? There are those people who I have heard say, look, Paul was the apostle of grace. Paul went out and preached the gospel of grace. And these, a lot of these very same people don't believe that we should include repentance in our preaching. Because after all, you know, we just need to tell them to believe Jesus. Paul did that. Well, here, Paul is saying, look, everywhere I went, I went in accordance with what Jesus commissioned me to do, I preached to the Gentiles that they should turn, repent and turn to God. And that it would become obvious that they had done that because they would begin to manifest works that would be consistent with a transformed life, a new creation, right? Guys, the New Testament is clear that there could be no salvation without repentance. Repentance is the prerequisite to believing the gospel for salvation. I have you turn to two scriptures, Mark 1 and Luke 24. We'll look at Mark first. I want you to see this because a lot of Christians, pastors, preachers, I don't think are being faithful to the true gospel. Now, I understand they want to see people saved. I'm not saying they have... Uh, uh, nefarious motives in any way that they're purposely trying to hurt people but in their desire to see people saved and focusing so much on grace which is how we're saved they they run from any talk of works or change lives so on all right but here's what jesus said now here's what mark says about the lord jesus he, he says verse 14 mark 1 14 now after john john the baptist was put in prison Jesus came to Galilee, listen, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Think of repentance and believing as being flip sides of the same coin. They go hand in hand with, with regard to salvation. Okay, Then in Luke 24... Uh, this is right before Jesus ascended back to his father, after his resurrection, of course. Luke 24, starting with the verse 46. Then he, Jesus, said to them, his disciples, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that, listen, repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now, I, I bring all this up because, again, there are many pastors that don't believe repentance is necessary for salvation. They say a person only needs to believe in Jesus to be saved. In fact, I've even heard some say that, uh, that uh, telling people 
that they must repent before they can believe and be saved, well, they say is to teach salvation by works. Whenever someone says that to me, I simply direct them to the words of Jesus himself on the subject, which he spoke uh, in Luke 13, verse 3. The Lord Jesus said, I tell you, unless you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The Greek word for repentance, as you most of you know, is metanoia, which literally means to have a change of mind. To have a change of mind about the direction your life is moving in. In other words, as an unbeliever, your life is moving away from God towards sin. Repentance says, with regard to, to God, repentance says you want to turn around and start moving away from sin and toward God. Think of it like you're driving down an expressway. And you realize at one point you're going in the wrong direction. So you find the nearest off-ramp, you get off, travel over the expressway, get on the on-ramp, and now you're going in the other direction. That's repentance. That's repentance. True repentance is having a change of mind, literally, about the direction of your life. You're not going in the right direction, and you want to change that and start going in the right direction. But it's such a... Um, and, and we have to be careful because... True repentance is having a change of mind so profoundly that it, it always leads to a change of, of lifestyle, okay? And, and I want to just, listen, only the Holy Spirit can provide the power to change. But the desire to change, that has to come from us. God won't force it on us. God won't, he often does because he loves them, wants to see them saved. But God will not force anyone to be saved. The, the desire that the realization I'm going in the wrong direction and I want to turn around and start moving toward God, that comes from us. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit's not working and convicting and, and showing you that the path that your life is going in is, is not right. That's true. I mean, the Holy Spirit's definitely involved. But when you come to a place where you're ready to pray, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. I want to receive you. I don't want to live this way anymore. I'm tired. I'm destroying my, my, my family, my wife, my kids. Uh, my drinking is out of control, my drug use. Whatever it might be, you realize at one point, because the Holy Spirit's convicting, I, my life is not moving in the right direction. I'm moving away from God, and if I keep going in this direction, I'm going to wind up destroying myself and my loved ones. And then when that realization dawns, and you pray to receive Christ, the Holy Spirit moves in, and now... He gives you the power to make the actual changes. Those changes are an evidence that the Holy Spirit is now inside of you. We're not saying change your life first, clean up your life, and now you're worthy enough to accept Christ. That is exactly the opposite of what I'm saying. We, we, we talk about repentance, and, and often Christians say, well, if you haven't changed your life, you haven't really repented. Now, there might be some truth to that, because some people give God lip service. But there are many Christians who really do want to change. Whatever it is that they're doing, they're saved, and yet they're still in bondage to something. And they're crying out every day, God, I don't want to be in bondage to this anymore. Lord, please give me grace to change, right? And eventually that grace comes. I told you about my uncle, my uncle Art. He came to the church for many years uh, before he went to be with the Lord. But 
growing up, my uncle Art was a uh, an alcoholic like you couldn't believe. I mean, he was really bad news alcoholic. I mean, he drink drink every day. Um, he just was in, in complete bondage to alcohol, and he had tried to get free on his own through his own strength for years. Never could. So he receives Jesus. And, and it starts to change. But the alcohol still was hanging on. And so one day, in a, in a moment of total brokenness, because, you know, you want to pray, God, help me. I can do it, Lord. Just give me a little push. God said, okay. You know what? When you come to a place where you realize, no, you cannot do it, it's not that you need my help. You need to get out of the way and let me live my life through you. He got down on his knees. He told me this story. He got down on his knees, and he just cried out to God, totally broken. God, this I can't get free of this. If you don't deliver me from this poison, I, I'll never be free of it. He said, he said amen and got up off his knees and never touched another drop the rest of his life. He never even went through DTs, never had any withdrawals. God completely delivered him. Does it happen that way with every Christian? No, I'm not saying it does. I mean, every Christian can get free of whatever substance they're in bondage to. I'm not saying God will allow some to stay in bondage, but that's a pretty dramatic testimony. For some, as they just keep drawing closer and closer to Jesus, they feel the power of this thing beginning to lessen until finally it's gone. God works in mysterious ways in all of our lives. But repentance is the first step for everything in our relationship with God. Starting with, I need to have a change of mind about my life and where I'm going, and I need Jesus. That's salvation repentance. And then as you're saved and as a Christian, there are other things that we constantly pray that God would break us of or take from us. And oftentimes, we have to repent of something. We're holding on. You know, We won't let go of something. And so we need to understand that. Repent, give it to God. I, I want to have a change of I, I, I have a change of mind about this. Lord. I don't want to do it anymore. But I don't have the power to make the actual change. And God says, that's fine. You have the will, you have the heart, I'll give you the strength. That's how God just keep drawing close to Jesus. And you will find that more and more the flesh will be less and less of a of an issue, and the spirit will control more and more. It's important to note that repentance being preached by God's servants throughout the Bible is a prerequisite to people getting their lives right with God. This is a concept that's not limited to what Paul said in Romans 1 verse 5, obviously. God has had his servants throughout the Old and New Testaments that uh, represented him, prophets that went to a, the wayward nation of Israel, and called them to repent because they were moving in the wrong direction. Uh, there are people that God has raised up in America that are not technically prophets, but God is using them to call this nation back to repentance. And you hear it from pulpits all across the nation. There are good men who are preaching repentance uh, in, these, in these last days. Uh, and maybe God will be gracious and America will be spared the coming judgment of God. Uh, I don't know. I, we hope so. But this is a subject that permeates both the Old and New Testaments. 
God using people to preach repentance that they might get their lives right with God and come back to Him and begin to walk with Him again. I'll just give you some New Testament examples, okay? Repent was the first word out of the mouth of John the Baptist when he began his public ministry in Matthew 3. Repent was the first word out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ as he began his public ministry, uh, Matthew 4 records. Repent was the first word out of the apostles' mouths as recorded in Mark 6 as Jesus sent them out two by two to preach the gospel. Repentance was an integral part of the gospel um, repentance was an integral part of the gospel that the church was commissioned to preach uh, to the world. We just saw Luke 24, verses 46 and 7. Repent was the first word of Peter's invitation on the day of Pentecost. He preaches this powerful message. They were cut to the heart, and they said, Men and brethren, Peter and the disciples, what must we do? First word, Peter says, repent. Repent. And let every one of you receive Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. I give you one more. Repentance was an essential part of a part of Paul's gospel presentation. We just read Acts 26, verses 19 to 20. Guys, repentance is a word we don't hear too much anymore um, in the church today. It sounds archaic, it sounds old-fashioned, you know, out of step with the culture. And so in, a, in a, an effort to be hip, cool, relevant, politically correct, many pastors have removed repentance from their preaching and teaching altogether. And as such, their favorite evangelistic verses are now John 3.16 and Revelation 3.20. You know them, I'll read them to you. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish in hell, but have everlasting life, right? Revelation 3.20, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door of their heart, is the idea, I will come into him to her and dine with him or her and he, she, with me. Beautiful scriptures. I love them, all right? In, God, in John 3.16, the Lord Jesus declares um, God's love for the human race. And I think every one of us in this room, if we have ever witnessed to anybody, and I know we have, John 3.16 has come up, okay? Which is fine. It's a beautiful, succinct gospel message. But you have to understand something. Jesus never gave it. Uh, as a full gospel presentation to bring sinners to Christ. It's a wonderful part of the gospel message, declaring God's love, how he sent his only begotten son, that we might receive him and not go to hell but have everlasting life. But you see, many try to use John 3.16 as a kind of a standalone gospel presentation. And they neglect to mention, either through ignorance or oversight, I guess, how Jesus preached repentance at other times as being necessary for salvation, as we just cited earlier. And with regard to Revelation 3.20, if you look uh, at that verse, Revelation 3.20, you will notice 
right before the first, there is a space, and before that there is a period, and before that there is the word repent. Revelation 3.19, therefore, Jesus said, be zealous and repent, period, space. New verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Guys, there can be no salvation without repentance. Let me read to you again uh, what I mentioned earlier, Luke 13, verses 3 and verse 5. And I want to repeat it because Jesus repeated this twice. I mean, excuse me, he uh, mentions this twice. All right. Verse 3, Luke 13, verse 3, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he repeats it in verse 5 for emphasis, right? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Whenever the Lord Jesus Christ says something, we would be wise to perk up and listen, okay? Because he didn't waste words. Everything he said was important. When he repeats himself, you know, verily I say to you this or that. Verily, verily I say, whoa, drop what you're doing, tune in, because what I'm about to say is extremely important. Jesus would say by repeating it, right? Repentance was something Jesus Christ felt very strongly about. But where is that kind of preaching today? For the most part, in the church, it has been replaced, I think, by a modern, politically correct gospel. You see, it's not fashionable today to preach a gospel that dem demands people give up sins and worldly pursuits to deny themselves their own fleshly desires to then take up the cross and follow in Jesus' footsteps. That, you know... Any church that has a marquee out in front that says today's message, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus, I don't think is going to draw a lot of people in. Now, you always have your faithful saints who love the Lord, and that's exactly what they want to do. God bless you. But the churches that tend to be the biggest churches are the ones that have on the marquee today's message, the five steps in financial success or whatever right? You'll pack it out. You'll pack it out, okay? It's just not fashionable to teach people that being a Christian means you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after Jesus. Listen, with all your heart, we call it what? Commitment. Commitment. That's what Jesus is looking for. Do you know the problem with so many I don't even know if they're all saved, but I'll just, just hypothetically. You know what the problem with many churchgoers today is? They want to date Jesus, but they don't want to get serious about Jesus. It's like a lot of guys I've met over the years. They just want to perpetually date a gal, but they don't want to get serious with this gal, make a commitment to her, right? That's how a lot of people treat Jesus. They want a superficial relationship because they might need his help here and there in the course of their life. But they don't want to get serious. They don't want to make a. They don't want to marry Jesus. And the New Testament uses marriage um, 
imagery, you know, we're the bride of Christ. He's our bridegroom, right? Talks about, he's given us the, um, uh, the Holy, uh, Ephesians 1, how he's given us um, his Holy Spirit as a down payment, right? Greek is arabone. It could be translated, translated engagement ring. When we accepted Christ, he gave us the engagement ring or the guarantee of the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, which was his way of saying, I'm serious about you. You, you find a piece of property, you're, wow, this is it. This is the house I want. You put a down payment on it. What are you saying? I'm in earnest. It used to be called earnest money. I'm in earnest. I'm serious. I'm going to go back and get a loan and come back and buy the whole deal. But right now, I'm giving you a down payment to hold it for me, right? Jesus made us a down payment. We accepted him, that he was going to return, that he's serious about us. He's coming to get us, to take us to be with him forever. And we'll sit down. The first thing we'll do when he raptures us to heaven, we will sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? He's going to fulfill the promise he made to us that someday we were going to be his bride, uh, and so on. But a lot of folks, they just want to date Jesus. They don't want to get serious about him. Uh, in fact, the gospel that we hear preached so often today on TV and radio is come to Jesus and you'll, he'll, you know, and, and you'll be rich. Come to Jesus and he'll take away all the pain of life and you know, make you happy and successful. The gospel being preached today is a, for the most part, is a crossless gospel that tells people to simply believe some facts about Jesus in your head. Well, I believe he's the son of God. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he rose from the dead. Wonderful. I believed every one of those things when I was a Catholic for 25 years of my life. And I wasn't saved. Head knowledge is not what saves you. It's the heart commitment where now you say, Lord, I believe it's at the point where I want you to take over. I want to marry you. I want, I want to have a commitment with you that, you know, you're my, you're my Lord. You're my king. My life is yours now. See, that's the kind of heart that saves. There's a lot of superficiality in churches today. And a lot of it starts with the pulpit. Pastors in an attempt to get people in, keep them in the seats, want to water things down so it's not too heavy. That's a real shame. But again, guys, the gospel being preached today, for the most part, is a crossless gospel that tells people to simply believe some facts about Jesus, and, you know, he'll give you heaven. And you don't even have to worry about giving up anything. You don't have to worry about giving up your alcohol or drugs or sex, sex outside of marriage. Just believe. But that is not the gospel that Jesus or the apostles preached because it's not the true gospel. It's what some have called easy believism. It makes no demands. It doesn't require a commitment. I mean, how in the world did this essential element, repentance, how in the world did this essential element of the gospel get excluded from modern preaching and evangelism? Because, again, you rarely hear the word repentance from the pulpit today in a lot of churches. You don't hear it a lot in Christian radio or even in Christian books that hit the top ten list uh, of Christian book sales. Books that are written geared to help you be a fruitful Christian don't even touch on repentance anymore. What, what happened? 
Well, we need to go back a ways, back to 1937. I'm not saying it all started there, but that's when a very godly man named uh, Harry A. Ironside, great man of God, great Bible teacher, that noticed that the biblical doctrine of repentance was being, listen, systematically diluted and, and deleted from the gospel message by some who saw it as a work, um, as a work, and therefore contrary to the gospel of grace that Paul preached. So the devil had gotten in there and began to cause church leaders to buy into this idea that repentance is a work. And the gospel is all about the gospel. It's a gospel of grace. So they began to separate repentance from believing. Let me quote to you from the book he wrote entitled, Except Ye Repent. Again, Ironside was a champion of repentance, and he had this to say on the subject. He said, and I quote, The doctrine of repentance is the missing note in many otherwise orthodox and fundamentally sound Christian circles today. That was in 1937. One well-known well pastor today had this to say, and I quote, This is not a new battle. This is an old battle being fought for the minds of a new generation. People today are preaching a gospel that says, Look, all you have to do is believe in Jesus. He's standing at the door of your heart knocking. Just open the door. Don't worry about your sin. Don't worry about giving up anything. God will take care of all that later. The author goes on to say, Shallow preaching that does not grapple with the terrible fact of man's sinfulness and guilt, calling on all men everywhere to repent, results in shallow conversions. He actually means fake conversions. And so we have a myriad of glib-tongued glib professors, not college professors, although we have those too. He's talking about professors, those who profess to know Jesus. Okay, We have a myriad of glib-tongued professors today who give no evidence of regeneration whatsoever. Pratting of salvation by grace, they manifest no grace in their lives, loudly, loudly declaring that they are justified by faith alone. They fail to remember that faith without works is dead. Of course, you all remember what Paul said to a um, young pastor named Titus. In Titus 1.16, Paul said, Many in the church, now I'm paraphrasing, many in the church profess to know God. I'm a Christian, sure. Yet, by the way they live, they deny they even know Him. I'm not saying Christians can't be carnal. I'm not saying Christians can't be backslidden. But I am saying there's a lot of professing Christians who are not regenerated, who are populating churches, watering down the gospel because they demand it be watered down. They're not ready to pay any price to follow Christ. If they even go to church, it's all about what God's going to do for me. Along these lines, one well-known pastor had this to say, and I quote, he said, some years ago, I was writing with a professor. Now, this was a college professor. I was writing with a professor who taught at a well-known evangelical seminary. We happened to pass an unusually large liquor store. 
When I made a comment about it, my companion said it was one of a large chain of liquor stores in the city owned by a man that went to his church and was a regular attender of an adult Sunday school class. As a matter of fact, he is in my discipleship group, my friend said. I meet with him every week. Doesn't that kind, doesn't that kind of business he is in bother you, I asked. Oh, yes, he said. We talk about that frequently. But he, he feels that people who drink are going to buy their liquor somewhere and that it might as well be in his stores. Taken aback, I asked, is the rest of his life in order? He replied, well, he left his wife and is living with a young woman. And he still comes to church and discipleship class every week? I asked in amazement. The professor sighed and said, yes, and... You know, sometimes it's hard for me to understand how a Christian can live like that. I said, have you ever considered that he might not be a Christian at all? End quote. I don't know who I'm more upset with. The guy living with the young gal? Or with this, the professor of a, of a seminary who seems to think, well, it's not ideal, but, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really something, Okay. Uh, for, look, let, let, let's move to this, okay? I know that some of you are, are thinking to yourself, well, how do I know if, I'm tr if I've truly repented? And the idea is for salvation. You say it's essential for salvation. Well, how do I know if I have truly repented and am saved, okay? Well, there's going to be certain fruits in your life that are going to bear testimony to the genuineness of your repentance and, of course, your faith. Turn to Matthew 3. How do we know if we really repented? Well, Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, children of serpents, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. The idea is first, before I you know, baptize you in water, which is a way to prepare your heart for the Messiah who's coming, right? But, but John makes it a, a, a very good point. He says, look, there are fruits associated with true repentance. That's the idea, right? True biblical repentance always involves change. In other words, fruits, right? Um, it is true that sometimes for a Christian, now somebody's already saved, um, change takes time. As I said, sometimes, uh, you know, when I got saved, I think, you know, eight out of ten of my bad habits disappeared almost immediately. But a couple hung on, you know, two or three hung on for a while, and that's why you have to get serious. You have to really come before God and cry out to Him and, and, uh, and, and ask for grace and so on, and eventually those things went by the wayside as well. So, so sometimes for a Christian, it takes time. But listen, a heart that is really given over to true repentance will always desire it with all the heart because they want to live an, a, a, a new life for God. They want to bring God glory uh, by the way they're living. In other words, when they cry out to God, Lord, I don't want to be this way. I don't want to live this way anymore. It, it's not lip service. There's a heart, passion behind it. 
They're serious, okay? How do you know, though, if you've truly repented? Well, I found this from a theologian named Eric Sauer. Not that all theologians give you the right advice, but, but I, I like this. Theologian Eric Sauer, uh, in his book, The Triumph of the Crucified, speaks of true repentance as a threefold action. First of all, he said, it involves awareness and understanding of our sin or wrongdoing. Well, you can't repent until you first recognize you've done something wrong. Second, he said, it involves our emotions. We feel bad about what we have done. Well, yeah, of course, that's important. And then third, it involves the appropriate actions to make for a change of lifestyle. Now, let, let me say this, because we're, we're running out of time. Satan is a master of feelings. He's very good at manipulating feelings to make you think God is doing something, you know, and you're on the right track. What am I talking about? You do something wrong. The Holy Spirit's working, and he convicts you, right? And, and you, you, maybe you cheated somebody in some way. And um, now you're feeling bad about it. At the time, you thought it was a good idea because, you know, I really need that extra money, whatever you did. But then after a while, the Holy Spirit starts to work in your heart. You're a Christian. And, um, but you really feel lousy about it. You know, you have regret, remorse. Or maybe this person isn't even a Christian yet, but the Holy Spirit is working. And so somebody points out, well, look what you did to that guy. You really ripped him off, you know. And so the guy starts thinking about it and thought, thinks, yeah, yeah I, I think I, I did. Yeah, that wasn't really good. That wasn't right. I feel bad about that, okay? Well, great. You feel bad about it. Wonderful. The problem is because you feel bad, you have regret, you think something spiritual has gone on between you and God. The very fact that you acknowledge I did something wrong and I feel bad about it, a lot of folks think, that's repentance. I repented. No, it's not. Those are feelings. As of that point, you haven't moved towards repentance at all. You've done nothing. True repentance says, if, especially if you're a believer, I cheated this person. I realize now that was wrong. I feel terrible about it, and I'm going to make it right. Remember Zacchaeus, Luke 19. Remember? Little guy, I don't know, five foot, tax collector, ripping everybody off. Because that's what the job entailed. You paid to be a tax collector. Because it was lucrative. You could really put the pressure on people and extort money out of them. Right? But then he hears about Jesus, this prophet from Nazareth. Right? And Jesus is coming, is, is in town. And people are lying in the streets. And Zacchaeus, only five foot, wants to see Jesus. But he doesn't want to take a chance of working his way through the crowd because everyone hates him. Would be nothing for somebody to pull a dagger out. There's Zacchaeus, give him a, a, a you know, in, in the back. So he decides to climb up a sycamore tree, right? And he's looking down, and here comes Jesus talking and teaching. And Zacchaeus is looking, and Jesus stops right under the tree, looks up, and says, Zacchaeus, come on down. I need to have lunch at your house today. Can you imagine that? Oh, Zacchaeus was thrilled, scurried on down. We don't get the conversation during lunch 
All we get is what Zacchaeus said after spending time with Jesus. Lord, what did he say? He said, um, basically, I, if I have taken anything from anybody unlawfully, I'll restore, I'll return fourfold. I'm going to make right all the evil I have done. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. See, that's true repentance. Where if you can make it right, you do make it right. Oh, but I don't know how to, it's going to cost me a lot of money. If it's true repentance, you're going to do whatever it takes to make it right. Sometimes you can't make it right. But if you can, you need to do that. Um, but, again, remorse and regret are, are rooted in feelings, whereas true repentance is rooted in actions, turning from sinful behaviors to a life that is, listen, obedient to the faith. Romans 1, verse 5. That's what we've camped on tonight. And I don't have time to get into it because you know this, how Paul, in 2 Corinthians 7, he, he wrote a letter to the, to the Corinthians who were doing some bad things. And he, and he challenged them, right? And, um, well, let me just read to you 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 to 10. Because Paul addressed this very issue in 2 Corinthians 7, calling remorse and regret worldly sorrow if no change takes place. He said, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9, Now I rejoice that you were made sorry. So they, they got his letter and they were broken over it. He said, I rejoice that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance, to change. For you were made sorry, listen, in a godly manner. Godly sorrow, well, he goes on, verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance, again, change, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So obviously there were people in Corinth that Paul was writing to that might have been going to the church that Paul knew weren't saved. So he writes in this letter, right? He talks about worldly sorrow. What does that mean? I feel guilty, I have regret, I have remorse, but that's about as far as it goes. But Paul says, no, your sorrow you proved was godly sorrow because it led to repentance, to change. And then he said, that's the litmus test that you know whether or not you have true repentance in your heart. Let me finish with this. He goes on to tell them in verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 7 um, the results that their godly sorrow produced there in Corinth. He said, for, uh, for observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. I mean, what diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation against your sins. Uh, what fear of the coming judgment, if you don't get right with God, that's always a, a part of a heart that God's working on. You fear coming judgment. A hard-hearted, worldly person, you could talk to about judgment all day long. They laugh at you. Because they're so focused on the moment that, and, and, and then half the, the time they're telling themselves they're a good person anyways. God would never do that to me. So on. But he says, look, man, you guys were really broken. 
you guys, why wow, you you began to hate the sin. You you feared God's judgment. Uh, you with vehement desire you wanted to make this right. What zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this manner. You you changed. One pastor put it this way, son I quote Simply feeling guilty over what I have done is not repentance. In essence, I haven't even touched upon the sin itself. And Satan has effectively counterfeited the path that leads to genuine repentance because it is so important to our walk with God. It is possible for a Christian to remain in an attitude of regret and remorse for years and get nowhere in victory over sin because God doesn't work through regret or remorse. He works through repentance. Again, guys, much of the gospel being presented today holds forth a false hope to sinners. It tells them they can, live, they can have eternal life while still basically living in rebellion against everything God has said in his word. Amazing. You know, we have leaders I saw on Ash Wednesday of this last year getting in front of a microphone and camera with the ashes smeared on their foreheads. The very leaders that are promoting abortion even after birth. You think smearing some ashes on your head in some kind of religious, you know, activity is going to cause God to forgive your sins? You need to repent. And by that I mean stop promoting killing kids or whatever other godless agenda you're pushing at the moment. A lot of pastors are preaching a faulty gospel, promising people salvation from hell, but not necessarily deliverance from sin. You know, it offers redemption without repentance, heaven without holiness. Of Hebrews 12, 14, the writer says, without holiness, nobody is going to see the Lord. What does that mean? It simply means that you have to be a genuine Christian. That's what the holiness of that verse is all about. You have to be a genuine Christian who has been set aside by the Holy Spirit and placed in the body of Christ. That's what holiness means, separation. A person who is not separated from the world and is still doing all the stuff the world does without any guilt or, or conviction, that's not living a holy life. I mean, I, I'm certainly not perfect in, in my Christian life. But I know one thing. I don't want to be in the world anymore. I don't want to do what the world does ever again. Am I perfect as a, as a, a believer? No, absolutely not. I still want to draw close to Jesus every day and, 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 and gain more and more strength that, you know, whatever is unpleasing to him, I would repent and give it to him and make he would make me more and more like my Savior. I think that we'll just leave it there. Um, I think we've said enough on the issue. And Paul wants us to understand that going into the world and preaching the gospel of God means that we ourselves have to live obedient to the faith. I mean, nobody is going to listen to somebody who talks about, you know, uh, Christian living who's not living a Christian life. And the first thing that needs to happen is you recognize I'm a hypocrite. What am I doing? I'm not living for Jesus. I'm hanging out with other Christians who are just as worldly as I am, 
because I don't feel so bad then. This has got to stop. Lord, I forgive me. I repent. Please give me the grace now to turn around and live a, a righteous life for you. And so on. All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth, Lord. And we have much to learn still about what it means to be your ambassadors, those who are sent forth with this incredible commission to go into all the world and preach repentance from sin, a change from the old life, to turn to you and live a new life being filled with the Spirit, and uh, being a light in the darkness. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.